Hi, folks. It's Mark saying hello after what feels like a very long time. It's felt that way for us, at least. We've got some updates. First off, Other Men Need Help is coming back. We're going to be back in a few months with season four. We're keeping it a mystery for now. But if you want to know more and also support the show, go to patreon.com slash othermenneedhelp and make a donation. This is how we make the show, and we appreciate every bit of support. Second, this week is our five-year anniversary. If you're new to the show, welcome. You've got half a decade of episodes to enjoy, which sounds much more daunting than it is. For those that have listened all the way since the beginning, you will know that I have a thing about cars that have manual transmissions. This is partly due to the men's media I grew up on, including classic getaway scenes and other influences. But again, if you've listened in the past, then you know that a lot of that has to do with my stepfather, Lauren, one of the stars of our first season. Lauren sadly passed away in September after a very long life. He transitioned peacefully, leaving behind a very loving family. His imprint on me will, I'm sure, be echoed in my interactions with family, friends, and really everyone throughout the rest of my life. And his time in my life is also really instrumental in the show you listen to here. His model of masculinity was one of patience, great depths of tenderness, profound self-reflection, and genuine affection for others. If one of the goals of making a show like this is to showcase masculine warmth, well, whenever we're successful, Lauren's fingerprints are very much there. Looking back at our first season, I could guess what some fan-favorite episodes are, but I do know that when we released our two-parter about a date I went on and what it had to do with me learning how to drive, I got a ton of messages, probably the most out of any episodes from that season. Something about Lauren or my relationship with him led men in my life, as well as strangers, to reach out just to say, that one did something to me. I can't say what that is exactly, but I can say that my stepfather was a special breed, and I would hope that the depth of his care, maybe hinted at in that episode, isn't limited to him, that it's a model more of us are capable of. In honor of our five-year anniversary, and in honor of the man who became my second father, we're revisiting our episodes Manual Men and Manual Men Part 2 today as one complete package. Remastered, as they say. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. My friend Clementina has been getting bigger over the last year. What's the weight that I'm looking at? A hundred kilos kilos. I don't even know what that is. A hundred kilos is 225 pounds. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. Since the last time I'd seen her, Clementina had gotten into Olympic style weightlifting and she spends a lot of her week between two gyms in the DC area. On this particular day, we were talking at a CrossFit in Northwest DC where she walked me through her two hour routine. There's something about everything that's involved in the complex movement of Olympic-style weightlifting that gives you every panic attack, and then it provides every kind of meaningful joy. (laughs) Clementina is a Renaissance woman with a background in science, culinary arts, and if there was an award for vulgar honesty, I'd hand it to her. 
I don't fucking care. What the fuck do you mean? What am I doing in there? Oh my fucking Christ. What the fuck was that? Yeah, totally fuck, right? Along with everything else, she's added intense weightlift training to her skill set. I don't know much about weightlifting or the community that goes along with it. And I always assume that women face more hurdles than men. You know, what's interesting is that within the sport of CrossFit and the sport of weightlifting, um, women are regarded with respect and reverie. But outside of it, the perception of it outside is a totally different story. Dudes get real freaked out. Somebody said, the myth that women shouldn't be strong is perpetuated by women who fear work and men who fear women. And I think it's very true. I don't know if you caught that, but that whole thing is a saying within the CrossFit community. And the last words really struck me. Men who fear women. Dudes in particular, especially in dating, they're like, they're either, they either want to fetishize it in two different ways. It's either this, oh, you, you want to arm wrestle? <laughs> like some kind of stupid bullshit like that. Or it'll be like in this very negative way where they give you some kind of backhanded compliment. Like, oh, do you really want your biceps to be bigger than mine? Or like some bullshit like that, you know? And you're like, um, I actually don't care. I love riffing with her, especially about dating. Because as a single guy, it's so energizing to hear how all the other guys are the ones with issues. What's your response to the, like, you want to arm wrestle kind of comments? I'm always like, not really. <laughs> you want to just have dinner? I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> and how does it go from there? I mean, it depends. I'm currently mostly single right now, so I'm sure you can imagine how that typically goes. This is Mark Pagan. And you're listening to Other Men Need Help. I had just a few long relationships in my 20s and 30s that added up to nearly a decade of being partnered. That meant nearly a decade without having to label all the things that made me a viable bachelor. So after my last relationship ended a few years ago, I found myself setting up a dating profile for the first time. Besides what Clementina was saying, I like hearing the things that women have to say about dating and what they encounter with men's dating profiles. If anyone writes, just living life to the fullest, I immediately swipe via no. All the guys, like the first thing that they tell you is that they're like in finance or they're bankers. Number one, stop taking selfies. Like in 2017, in the age of information and technology where you have so many pictures, why do you need to take a selfie and put it on your profile? I don't care to look at your mirror selfie of you flexing your biceps with no shirt on. I have a picture of a guy showing his six-pack off in a porta potty Why would you do that? You can see the toilet. Like, this is not where romance started, ever. If there's not a single joke in a long-written profile, I think that's a... That, that's seriously bad. There's so many men who don't write a bio. And I've got friends who are like male friends who are great guys and they don't write anything. And I'm like, why haven't you put anything there? I think if they lead with like this facade of what they want you to think that they are, it, it's never the same thing in the end. You, you know, you can't get to know the person and like what they really like and what they're really about. I often tell them that sucks to hear. And it does. But inside, I'm also like, whee! <laughs> the world is going to love me. 
I got to admit that there was a bit of ego and maybe overconfidence because I keep thinking women have to encounter so many idiots out there and this is going to be kind of fun. My dating profile is like an announcement saying, hey world, Mark is back and this is what you've been missing. I so had this. And on top of that, I brought in a friend to help me. This is when we find out what kind of person you are, Mark. This is my buddy, Anita. I wanted her to call me out on any areas that I might be overlooking, just to get this profile sparkling. I say just pretend you're writing a Tinder profile. All right, so I'm going to set this up. I'm a straight man. Birthday, potential pictures. I want to be self-effacing without sounding like a, I don't care, and also I'm just a funny guy. Tell me what you think of this. Should I read it out loud? Sure. All right. Super sincere, patient, former b-boyer, genuine, dry-witted, female-raised, well-traveled, and poised. It's long. I would trim it by 50%. All right, so what I'm doing with my life. Oh, God, Anita, these... I would try and not go too hard on these questions. I mean, a lot of these I can just be honest about. Do you enjoy discussing politics? Yes, sure. Uh, Not on a first date. Yeah. Is astrological sign important? No. I would hope not. Is jealousy healthy in a relationship? Yeah. It is? It is. Like a little bit of jealousy. Oh, boy. Oh, After I set up my profile, there were a few weeks of online conversations that went nowhere, first dates that ended after a drink, and a series of polite but unmemorable evenings. I was reminded that dating is hard. And then Shripa showed up in my profile. Shripa was promising. Her messages were sharp and funny. She was communicative with a positive energy mixed with a dry wit. So we picked a brick oven pizza place and decided to meet on a Saturday night. I got to our date 15 minutes early and stood in front of the restaurant. There are these moments as an adult where I find myself talking to me as a teenager, saying things like, you're going on a date, you New York bachelor, you, and you've got credit cards in your name to pay for it. You know, one bottle of Malbec to recommend drinking. And there's a woman who's excited to meet this stranger she's been joking around with online. I heard heels coming up the sidewalk, and there was Shripa, much cuter than her pictures let on. Now, I didn't bring a recorder on the date, but I asked my friend Priya to play what happened on this date out with me. She has the same job that my date did, And she's just as enthusiastic about it. So I'm a public defender. So I've been a PD for seven or eight years now. Actually, I don't have too many people in my life who are public defenders. I don't know anybody. Well, that's that's good. That bodes well. That means you've never had to use my services. (laughs) So when she started talking about her career, the occupation itself and her passion for it, I did not feel good. I really, really love what I do. It's it's. I don't even feel like it's work sometimes. I wake up in the morning and I get to defend people who don't have a voice, who society has cast aside. And 
I get to be their representative. I get to either try to keep him out of jail or mitigate their sentences. Wow. Yeah. Anyways, I've like totally talked your ear off. Um, No, that's great. I wondered, am I insecure that my date is a successful woman? No, that can't be. That's not reflected on my dating profile. I'm a nice guy. I listen. I've never catcalled. I have tons of friends who are women. I'm progressive. In a few years, I will vote for the first woman nominated for the presidency. The myth that women shouldn't be strong is perpetuated by women who fear work and men who fear women. I am not threatened by a woman's success. Or am I? I look back and remembered a few moments when I had this same feeling. Like the time my high school girlfriend told me her SAT score, which was higher than mine. Or when my friend Jen told me about her promotion at a production company. Or the gallery opening for my ex-girlfriend Sophia's installation. The same night, she had to ask me a few times, Are you okay? What's going on? And now this date with Shripa. I know I'm not making the same amount as this woman, and I am not as enthusiastic about my career as she is. You tell me you're a weightlifter, or that you've lived or been to Guadalajara, or that you can drink me under the table, I'm fine, because I don't measure my worth in those areas. But if there's a threat of you making more money than me, or that you are more established in your career, I will search in my head for a way to remedy that situation. In my head, I thought, if only I owned a home, that could prove to her that I'm financially secure. If only I, I, I had a kid, or had been married, or, 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 or was close to getting married, that could prove that, that I was invested. And by the time the date ended, my head was plopped. I was like, there's no way this is going to work out. There's no way any dating is going to work out. Where the fuck is my life headed? And it was all because she was excited about her career. The next day, I was walking up 4th Avenue in Brooklyn, thinking about the night before. I have this habit. When I walk on the sidewalk, I like to look into cars to see which ones are automatic and which ones are stick shift. I just think, that's a real driver. So I'm walking, and I see this sports car, and I look inside, and it's got a stick shift, and there's a sign on the window that says, for sale, and it has a phone number. So impulsively, I dialed. I said to myself, I'm going to buy this car. I set up a time to meet the owner, and right after I got off the phone, I thought, oh my God, this is because of last night. I've become the guy who buys a sports car. No, 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 no. You go through my dating profile, you will not see me holding tigers or any shirtless pictures of me or photos of me with my bachelor crew hanging out in front of a Lamborghini in South Beach, Miami. What's up, girl? Mm, Damn, you looking good. This is different. This has got to be different. This has got to be different. Oswaldo was the name of the owner, and he lived a few blocks away from me with his daughter, Naomi, the two of them chatted with me as I looked the car over. He's the second owner of it. Now, I thought about what friends of mine would say if I texted them, I'm about to buy a sports car. Would they think I'm going to come pick them up in some red Porsche? It's a RX-7 84. What Oswaldo just said is it's an RX-7 from 84. As in, it's a 1984 
Mazda RX-7. What the hell was I doing? I wasn't even doing the sports car cliche right. I should be rolling up with something that makes people go, wow, this dude is early for a midlife crisis, but he is showing up in style. Experience the best-selling two-seat sports car in America. Experience. Experience the performance of the 1983 Mazda RX-7. Experience the stability of anti-sway bars front and rear. Zero to 50 in 6.3 seconds and efficient aerodynamics. Experience. RX-7, one of the world's great driving experiences. And one of the world's great sports car values. The more you look, the more you like the Mazda Experience. It didn't really hit me why this car was special until Oswaldo said, El carro Malibu eh, me ha gustado siempre porque mi papá en el año 69 él compró uno en el dealer y en ese carro fue que yo aprendí a manejar. Oswaldo loves the old Malibus because his father bought one and that's the car he learned to drive on. And this mid 1980s sports car sitting right in front of me, that was the car I learned to drive on. And from someone I did not expect to teach me. During my freshman year of high school, I'd spend cold mornings waiting for the 1221 school bus. I lived on Falls Road, which was, and still is, a major route for students driving to some of the high schools in Montgomery County, Maryland. Every day, juniors and seniors would whiz by. Some of them liked to let me know when they were driving by. It sucked. I'd be standing there with my headphones listening to Cypress Hill, and all these flashy cars were going by just laughing at me. This one day, a 1994 Nissan Maxima with tinted windows, neon ground effects, and alloy rims slows down and pulls over in front of me. I know this car. Chris Papadopoulos drives it. Chris was a senior who always had the flyest gear, like gold chains and brand new sports attire. Whatever team won the Super Bowl, Chris would be wearing their celebratory swag on Monday morning. He was that guy. Very cool. And I was nowhere on his radar. So on this one morning, I see his car sitting there, but can't see inside because of the tinted windows. Does he have a flat? What the hell is going on? Then the driver's side window rolls down just enough for his hand to pop out and wave me in. It was so out of context but I found myself running across Falls Road and getting into the passenger seat. I don't know why he stopped. To this day, I think it was purely a moment of senior charity to a freshman. He gives me a nod like, I got you. Chris puts the car in first gear and peels out as we drive to school. He didn't say anything. He just effortlessly changed gears. It was so transfixing and super attractive. He felt like a mythological guardian. After about a minute, Chris's hand moves up to the stereo unit, puts the power on, and turns it up to start pumping Shaquille O'Neal's latest album. I didn't know I needed to like Shaquille O'Neal as a rapper until I heard it coming out of Chris's car. The bass was so strong that I felt my organs moving. 
When we got to the parking lot at school, I took so much time getting out of the car. I just wanted to milk this moment for as long as I could and have as many people as possible see me leaving Chris Papadopoulos' hoopty. Maybe it was longer than needed because Chris gave me a look like, yo, dude, we got to get to school. I never really talked to him afterwards besides a nod or two in the hallway. In fact, I never had a conversation with him at all. The whole ride had just been communication through movement. But I had a glimpse of future success, and my brain made a checklist. Stick shift, quiet stance, and Shaquille O'Neal as soundtrack. This is Mark Pagan, and you're listening to Other Men Need Rides. We're going to go ahead and activate the clutch all the way down, all the way and then the we could go ahead and move it to the center. And then just get a feel for it. You know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and in this car, And then make sure This ride to school wasn't the first time I encountered a stick shift. Or a man driving one. There was my older brother David, cool cousins, and also so many of my friends over the years who had older brothers who would drop me off in their five-speed Saabs or BMWs, blasting Motley Crue to Tupac to U2 to Ace of Bass. Nobody talked. They drove. And they shifted. During this time in my life, I was also watching James Bond and Italian exploitation movies. They always had scenes of sporty cars running through small Mediterranean streets with Charles Bronson or George Lazenby not saying anything. But their driving was yelling, don't fuck with me, bro. By the time I hit puberty, I couldn't wait to either be a European spy or an older brother type who gave lifts. And I couldn't wait for someone to stare in awe at the way I escaped from Greek gangsters or peeled away from Tower Records. I couldn't have expressed this back then. But there was an affection to being around young men driving a stick shift and listening to tunes. It was all so mysterious. Like, what's going on in their head? It looked like there was no insecurity, no self-consciousness. Besides the independence of driving, it felt protective and safe. As if this silent driving presence is how men nurture. Remember, the defensive driver willingly gives up the right-of-way for safety. The man who was supposed to teach me how to drive was my dad. He wasn't around all that much, and when he was, I'd run errands with him in his boat of a Cadillac. He was a terrible driver, and the thing moved around like a canoe in a world of jet skis. Plus, he was old. And his soundtrack was always this classical music that he'd have to hum along with, but he could never remember the correct melody to. This was my destiny, and probably my car. Right before I started high school, my dad passed away unexpectedly. It was a rough transition, but there was a lot of family support, lots of help. And as I looked at the change ahead, 
I had a hard time imagining life in high school without the guidance of my father. I didn't expect how strongly I needed and wanted a mentor. I started as a freshman at Winston Churchill High School. No one knew me. I didn't have to be the quiet guy who couldn't drive and still secretly listen to the bodyguard soundtrack. This could be a fresh start. And as weird as it sounds, I figured if my dad was gone, maybe this meant I could get a new model of father. I knew there was a chance my mom would date or get remarried. And I was quietly excited about this because I was like, oh, we could bring a cool dad into the house. My dad was great, but he was old and did things like drive an old man's car and fall asleep watching the McLaughlin group. We needed someone who wore jeans and occasionally smoked cigarettes. Someone with a quiet resolve who'd be tough on me in the right ways, but also be like, hey, hop in, kid. Let me show you how to rob a racetrack. All right, that's going too far. But, you know, someone who would offer me guidance on how to be a cool, confident man. My mom starts dating, and I'm wondering who this hip guy will be that she'll eventually bring home to meet me. That was an interesting time of my life. That's Lauren, the man who became my stepfather. And all those plans that I had for a young, cool dad did not come to pass. Because the way I saw it at the time, my mom went and married the oldest man possible. At the time they started dating, I was 15, my mom was 45, and Lauren was 70. And today, he's 93 years old. I had just retired, by the way. So I was all involved in moving to a new house. The real estate agent was your mother. Yep. My mom's a real estate agent. Her name is Jean. She's buddies with a lot of her clients, so I wasn't surprised when she and Lauren became friends. But then he started showing up at our house a few times a week, and shortly after that, he was there at the end of the night, and he'd still be there in the morning walking around in his old man underwear. I wanted him gone. But Lauren wasn't going anywhere. And on top of that, he was impossible to dislike. He never cursed or raised his voice. And he was so pure in his devotion to my mother and sensitivity to our needs. Jean was so special to me. And I know very well that is a very difficult time for the children, my children as well as Jean's. My mom worked. Lauren was retired. I was turning 16. They thought it would be a great idea if Lauren taught me how to drive. The last thing I wanted to do was spend time with him one-on-one. But I wanted to learn how to drive stick shift. This was going to get me out of this life and turn me into a getaway driver or a stoic hunk or both. And the only car in the house with a five-speed was Lauren's 1985 Mazda RX-7. I'd forgotten that you drove that car. Yeah, that's right. That was the time when we were together. We'd been buying used cars and usually sedans and station wagons as the usual part of a suburban living. And Mazda had put together just a marvelously engineered little car. Uh, That was one of the, probably the, the second car that I had ever bought that was brand new. Day after day, Lauren and I would sit in this two-seater while I stalled out trying to get onto exit ramps on I-270 in Maryland. There was no Shaquille O'Neal, 
no Motley Crue, just my mom's boyfriend's voice, and more humming along with his classical radio. And Lauren seemed to be okay with all of it. You didn't have any problems. You, you were, seemed to be very comfortable driving it. I can imagine that there are some parents and their children, they wouldn't get along as, as, as teachers and students, but uh, we were fine. He was right. We never argued. He never raised his voice or cursed, no matter how scary those drives were. I got pretty good at driving five-speed transmissions. And if a day went especially well, Lauren would have me drive down 355 and ask me to pull into the parking lot of heaven, Popeye's Chicken on Frederick Road. I don't remember us talking about much, but what is there to say when you've got Cajun fries and spicy chicken? It was all right. Lauren was all right. I figured I'd get the stick shift under my belt, and these rides would be a fond memory after my mom and him break up. One day around my 16th birthday, my mother came home and said, Lauren asked me to marry him. And I said, yes. I didn't realize how much I missed my dad until my mom proclaimed her commitment to another man. On top of that, we had to move into his house and start sharing our worlds more closely. Our home, our habits, our cars... When I got my license at 16, I'd drive around as much as possible. One night I was out with my friends and had the RX-7. We were parked at some gazebo getting high. And when I came back to the car, the key kept sticking in the lock and I couldn't open the door. If I was in a regular headspace, I probably would have given it a few more patient tries and gotten the door open in less than a minute. That night, I looked at Lauren's car, and I felt a deep tinge of animosity and sadness. I lifted my leg and kicked the door as hard as I could. I didn't think it would be as dramatic a dent as it became, and even my friends were like, damn, dude. I said, "Uh, it'll pop out overnight, which I honestly thought would happen. At 7 a.m. the next morning, I wake up to see Lauren standing over me. He says, Mark? Come to the garage. I want to show you something. We went to the garage. He stood there in his flannel pajamas and moccasin slippers, pointed to the door, and said, What the fuck is that? Remember, Lauren never raised his voice or cursed. The worst thing that any of us had ever heard Lauren say was the word preposterous with a lot of emphasis. I was completely caught off guard by this F-bomb. My mom had witnessed the whole thing, and I looked over at her like, come on, help me out here. And she gave me a look like, you're on your own, dude. I started apologizing for everything. Lauren shushed me and said, dude, go, go get the plunger from your bathroom. And I thought, okay, what sort of weird mid-century punishment am I getting? I get the plunger, give it to Lauren, and after about 30 seconds... He expunges 97% of the dent and gets the door pretty close to its original shape. When it was done, I didn't know what he was going to say. And I was bathed in disappointment. And after a long pause, he says, you want to go to Popeye's? Now, denting your parents' car as a teenager is a slightly badass act of rebellion. But eating fried chicken at 8.30 a.m. is fucking gangster. (laughs) 
I hadn't thought about all of this until I ran into this car on 4th Avenue in Brooklyn. When I saw it, I thought, there's a stick shift. This will prove that I'm a cool guy. But Lauren, literally giving a fuck, saved my life in many ways and more explicitly gave me guidance. And this old sports car model made me feel taken care of. After all these years, I never sat down to talk to him about that or about how he and the car ended up in my life. See, Lauren didn't drive as a teenager. He grew up during the Great Depression. We took a drive, and he told me the story. See, when I turned 16, I was in college. So I had no place, and I had no car. Then World War II came along, and I was in the Navy. So I had no opportunity to drive. Then I was in graduate school, and gotten married, and I didn't have any money to buy a car. So it wasn't until I was 32. In his 30s, he started to teach physics, and he was married before my mom to his first wife, Polly. They moved to Newton, Massachusetts. Lauren and Polly were together for decades. They moved to Maryland, had kids. The children grew up, moved out. But Lauren and Polly's lives changed in the late 70s. Polly had been sick with muscular dystrophy for years. In the last 10 years, she uh, couldn't walk. So there was a long period of, uh, of my being a caregiver. One Sunday morning, she just didn't wake up. I remember my first reaction was, well, it's happened. That, that was the only way I could express it. It's happened. I knew all along that death happens. Here's the point in life where it's happened to me. And a new chapter started for him. I remember whether it was the next day or the following day, I guess I filled up with gas or something, and I had lunch at Popeye's. By myself, of course. I was being conscious of, well, I can do this. So in a way, it, it freed me up of the caregiver role that is very consuming. I, I remember recognizing that freedom that I had uh, for myself. I was simply continued with, with what I was doing. And I still had direction. And uh, I was opening up to a new life, not knowing quite what was going to develop. This is when he met my mom. This is how we became a family and how he had a two-seater sports car in his life. So maybe that was my midlife crisis or something, but I didn't feel it that way. And there was no other feelings of regaining youth or anything. That didn't enter into it at all. I didn't realize it at the time, but that car is where we got to know each other. One of the things that was, was interesting about revisiting this car, which not, not just that I learned on it, but I learned how to drive stick shift on it. And it was partly, I wouldn't have put this together. That was, I think, sort of our relationship, a, a bit of our relationship introduction as well. As children, we just don't think, can't, we can't even conceive of our parents as being other than our parents. I remember I was very comfortable with getting to know you. Uh, that was a very special time of my life. When would you tell yourself you can no longer drive? 
uh, it's when I can no longer function or I see myself as not seeing something, not, not responding. I, I recognize that as something that may well happen fairly soon. I, I don't know. Do you miss not driving a sports car? I, I enjoyed the RX-7, but that, that period's over. I did not buy the car. Instead, I got a shrink and worked on my career goals. It might not have been the answer, but it was a step. I did, however, ask Lauren to join me for one nostalgic getaway. We went to Popeyes. Five of them, so that's number six. Pardon? Spicy. Oh, and that date that I went on with Shripa? You may be wondering if anything happened with that. I thought the date had been a catastrophe, but I did get a text message the day after. And while Lauren and I ate our chicken and biscuits, I had him take a look at the response. I don't know if you can read with your glasses, but this one up here. This top one. Hi, Mark. That was fun. I could, I could have talked all night. Want to hang out again? That's pretty good. I thought I thought that it, uh, yeah. that she wasn't excited. So it's, it's hard to read people. What was it that you thought you blew it during the date? She was talking about her career, and she was very she's very successful, and she was very happy with her career. I wasn't, so it was a it was a career comparison that was making me feel insecure. And so she talked with such passion. She was very kind, and asked me questions, but I was feeling. This week's episode of Other Men Need Help was produced by Mark Pagan, Ben Goldberg, Tanvir Mansour, and Rebecca Seidel, with editing done by the whole crew. Special thanks to Lauren Bullock and the Stocktons. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play. And don't forget to rate and review the show. It is a huge help. Sign up for the newsletter at othermenneedhelp.com. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, adios, ciao, ciao, bye.